Yes. And I'm hoping they just kind of make it more about like just the core stuff that we all like about the first season and not as like just this crazy choreographed violent dance gangs. When it comes to podcasting, there are some people that are just really, really fun to talk to. Now, we're 340-some episodes into the show, and everyone who has ever been on knows more than a thing or two about their respective field. But let me tell you this. If you know somebody personally outside of the show, they're world-class at what they do, and they're fun to talk to, well, I can tell you it's probably going to be a pretty darn good show. Doug Kachijan is a physical therapist and CEO and co-founder of Resilient Performance Systems. Resilient seeks to systematically explore the continuum between acute rehabilitation and athletic performance. Resilient's clientele includes athletes and operators from Major League Baseball, the NBA, professional MMA fighters, the X Games, Winter and Summer Olympics, collegiate athletes, as well as those in federal law enforcement tactical teams and military special ops units. Before beginning his sports medicine practice, Doug was a pararescueman in the U.S. Air Force, where he deployed throughout the world to help provide technical rescue capability and emergency medical care to U.S. and allied forces. And in today's show, Doug and I are going to focus on the hot-button topic of return to play and his thoughts on how we can improve and streamline that process. Now, if you're a regular to the show, welcome back. As always, love and appreciate you. And if you're new here, Welcome. I'm Mike Robertson, and this is the Physical Preparation Podcast. In this show, we take deep dives into the art and science of coaching, cueing, program design, business, and personal development. Basically, anything to help you become a better trainer, coach, or rehab professional. Now, as someone that has essentially been doing return to play in some form or fashion since 2003, this is a topic I'm not only incredibly passionate about, but love talking about in depth. So today, Doug and I are going to start by talking about what the difference is between return to sport and simply training. We'll talk about how financial interests and competition amongst practitioners can negatively impact the results their athletes get. We'll talk about how to delineate the various roles in the return to play process and how practitioners can seamlessly transition athletes from step to step. And last but not least, we'll talk about the psychological side of the rehab process and how to keep your athletes moving in the right direction throughout. Whether you've done return to play for years or just getting into the game, I guarantee there's going to be something in this show that gets you thinking. Now, before we jump into this week's episode, I want to give you a quick recap of the week that was and a little insight as to what's new in my neck of the woods. So, not a ton going on. It's actually kind of nice. Things have slowed down just a little bit. The coaching is continuing to wrap up. I think I'm down to like three or four guys now. I probably got them a few more weeks and they're going to be heading off to camp. So uh, fun and a little bit slower. So that's kind of nice. I get to connect and, and chat with some of these guys a little bit more, but can tell you it's also going to be very bittersweet when they uh, take off here in the next couple weeks and I'm left Uh, as an empty nester, so to speak, in the gym. But when the coaching backs off a little bit, one thing that's nice is it's allowed me to be far more consistent in my own training. And I feel like over the summer, uh, I didn't do an awful job uh, of staying in shape and keeping the workouts up. I mean, I try and do something every single day, whether it's getting 11,000, 12,000 steps, 
just doing 30, 40 push-ups, maybe a quick kettlebell workout. I find ways to stay active, but the workouts that really move the needle uh, from about (laughs) April or May into early August are pretty few and far between because there's just so much time and so much energy that goes into coaching. So it's felt really good. I feel like I just in a couple weeks have already started to make some really good progress with how my body moves and how I feel. So I'll definitely be keeping you posted on that. Uh, the kids are in full swing with their sports. It's been a little bit slower for Cade uh, simply because with his baseball, I just feel like the rain has not been helpful at all. It's like it's beautiful Monday through Saturday, and then on Sunday when he's supposed to play a game or he's supposed to have a doubleheader, it's rained. Uh, so hopefully we have a practice tonight. We have a couple games this weekend. Uh, Kendall is back in the swing with her soccer. She had two games this last weekend, and it's pretty fun, like really watching her grow. You can almost see week to week the growth and the development. And just excited to see where she continues to grow and evolve because she's played way more positions this year. Normally she played on the wing. Uh, She's still playing on the wing, but now she's playing center mid a little bit, which I think is a great spot for her because she's really good on the ball. She's got really good awareness and good passing skills. She's even played a little bit of striker, which is very new for her. Uh, So just excited to see how she continues to get better. And I think the most important thing for me right now is it's a bigger commitment this year, right? She went from two practices a week to three some weekends we have one game, some weekends we have two, or you know, on the off chance we're at a tournament, we may play as many as three or four games. And every day she talks about, I'm excited for practice, I'm excited to play. So as a parent, that's, I think, the most important thing is she's enjoying the game, she's enjoying the process, and hopefully she continues to get better as the season goes on. So, uh, you know, the last thing that I wanted to mention here was, you know, again, as my own coaching has backed off in the gym, and I'm not coaching Kindle's team in soccer. I watch the practices, but I'm not actively coaching. Is it's allowed for a lot more of my own con ed because um, there were a lot of things over the summer that I'd started to make lists on. Uh, if you were following me on Twitter and on Instagram, I put some stuff out there earlier about knee pain, about tendinopathies, about Achilles stuff, uh, about force plates. Just lots of con ed going on. I've been listening to all kinds of different podcasts, taking notes, um, the YouTube videos. Uh, I got the Exerfly course uh, on flywheel training because I really want to just learn more. Like I've learned a lot this summer and I feel like I'm far, farther, much farther along than I was uh, when I started this summer, but excited to, to dive in more about the science and practice behind flywheel training. Uh, and arguably the biggest thing is we just invested in a set of Hawken Dynamics force plates. So those will hopefully be here in the next three to four-ish weeks, uh, depending on when they turn those around. Um, somewhat related, Hawken Dynamics will also be coming on as a sponsor to the podcast. Um, I was excited uh, to partner with them because I met Drake uh, a couple months ago. I met him over the summer. He was in town for uh, an event and just blown away at the quality of the plates, at the ease of use. And this is really, I think, the next step in my own evolution as well as what we're going to do at IFAST because people know we know what we're doing when it comes to movement, but I really want to become more objective. And, you know, it's great to say, oh, yeah, this person looks good. And, you know, our coaching eye, I will never discount how important a highly trained coaching eye is. 
but at the same time being able to have those measurables, to have those objective KPIs that we can show to our athletes and say, hey, look, this is where you started. This is where you're at. I think there's unlimited potential there. So just really excited about the future, about the continued evolution of myself and the gym. So much more to come on that, but definitely, definitely excited about the future. Okay, that does it for me. We're going to take a quick break, and then we're going to jump into this awesome episode with my guy, Doug. Today's episode of the Physical Preparation Podcast is brought to you by Exerfly. If you're unfamiliar with flywheel training, it's a method of strength training where your athletes generate resistance by using the inertia of a flywheel instead of traditional gravity-based resistance training. By accelerating and then decelerating a disc, your athletes generate resistance at all phases of the movement. This allows for high force training as well as eccentric overloading without the need for crazy heavy weights. I first got interested in flywheel training because I wanted my athletes to be better prepared for sport. Standard free weight training is great for the early preparatory phases, but I wanted something that could improve the rate of force development in both the concentric and eccentric phases of the lift. Most importantly, I wanted to make sure my athletes were prepared for those eccentric forces that they'll encounter in sports. And with their motorized technology, the Exerfly allows you to increase the eccentric phase of the lift from anywhere from 1 up to 80%. The biggest objection I had early on was learning a new piece of tech or equipment. After all, sometimes these things sound great, but really aren't all that functional, or they take forever to figure out. But luckily, if you take the time to watch a few short videos and experiment a little bit, you'll be using the Exerfly like a pro in no time. Setup is quick and easy, and my athletes are absolutely loving it. Last but not least, there are tons of different exercises and variations you can use as well. Whether we're talking squats, hinges, presses, split squats, if you can think of it, chances are you can figure out a way to do it with the Exerfly. The really cool thing is Exerfly is used by numerous teams in the NFL, NBA, over 50% of the English Premier League, and numerous Olympic developmental programs as well. Now, as a small business owner, I normally think, hey, this is way outside of my budget, I can't afford it, because we all know in a small business, every penny counts. But Exerfly has you covered there as well. They offer 36-month interest-free financing, so you can get started ASAP with your training and pay as you go. And when you factor in a 30-day money-back guarantee, two-year warranty, and free shipping, I really believe this is a solid investment. Look, the bottom line is this. If I don't really love something, I'm not going to promote it on my show. I love my Exerfly, the results I'm getting with it, and I think you will as well. To learn more, head over to exerfly.com so you can start building some savage athletic beasts in your gym. Again, that's exerfly.com. Doug, man, thanks so much for coming back on the show here today. Really excited to have you on. Could you start by just telling us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, I mean, I guess I'll make this part quick so we can get into the uh, the fun part. But yeah. I am a uh, private practice physical therapist at uh, Resilient Performance Physical Therapy. Um, so started that in 2015 at this point with my friends and uh, not classmates, but they were in the same PT program as, as me at uh, New York, uh, Greg Spatz and Trevor Rappa. And since then, um, we started out in New York, and now we have a location in New Jersey, one in Connecticut, which is my garage, actually. <laughs> uh, just just trying to just trying to grow the team. So now we're up to uh, start out as the three of us, and now we have between full and part time four people 
in New York, four people in New Jersey, and then I split time between New York and, uh, and Connecticut. So the one person in Connecticut is me. I'm also one of the four in, in New York. And um, yeah, you know, kind of like you, just, I know we're going to talk about kind of exploring that continuum between rehab and training. So I think that's something that all of the, the therapists at Resilient are interested in and just trying to, you know, a lot of times like we don't have access to good strength coaches like you and the people that listen to your podcast. So just by, by virtue of the fact that they don't have access to those people, we kind of have to delve into the, yes. the strength and conditioning side of things. So I know that we're going to get, you know, a lot deeper into that and kind of what the delineation should be between the, the different professions. But I think there's a lot more similarities than differences. Yeah. I love it, man. Now, people don't know you were actually you had to be in the top 30 or 40 people that I had on the show, man. But then looking back, we're on episode like 340 or 350 at this point. So it's been a hot minute since you were on. Like what's yeah. new in your neck of the woods, man? I mean, you were probably you'd probably just started resilient. Then what else is new? Yeah, and I mean that's crazy. Like I don't know how you do this every week and because the whole <laughs> point I was doing podcasts and as you know like life only gets busier and to do right. it once a week is doesn't sound like a lot but it's a lot. Yep. Um I mean besides like just the you know trying to like just grow grow resilient. I mean I would say the biggest change was just personally like have a have a son now, I'm a dad and you know trying to trying to grow the two families, you know the per- yes. the personal and professional one. So one child now and hopefully, you know more at some point down the road um so that's been i mean that's been fun also also a challenge you know there's no yeah. uh there's no school for that you just kind of figure it out but <laughs> yeah it, you know, it kind of shows as you know that when you really like have to do something you figure it out you know <laughs> yes yeah i love it man i love it so you know one thing that i've always loved about you is that as a pt you're not only super pragmatic but you really see both sides of the continuum, right? You see the rehab side, but you also like to get in the gym and train yourself. So with that being said, I'd love to start with this question. What is fundamentally different about return to sport versus just regular old get in the gym training? Well, so I don't think there's actually that many differences. and I think the differences are overstated. I mean, the biggest difference that we have to all respect is like the legality of it. So you know, whatever it is, if it's typically state law, we'll say like, okay, if somebody has like a medical condition where they're in pain or they're coming off a of surgery, you know, different types of treatments um, are sort of designated for certain people who have the, the educational background or training. Um, so that's, that's one thing. But beyond that, I mean, I, I don't think that there's fundamentally much of a difference when you consider that if you're working with, let's just make it like simple and say we're working with an athlete if you're working with an athlete that's coming off a surgery and let's just say it's like, um, you know, a soccer player, like at the end of that rehab, they have to be prepared for the sport. And so whether you're working, whether you're like quote unquote rehabbing an athlete or training an athlete, like from a preparation standpoint, you're looking at what are the demands of the game you're working backwards and you're trying to prepare that athlete to be able to meet at least the physical demands of the game. Right. I mean, we can get into, at what point does sort of strength and conditioning become sport coaching and technical? But I think like, sure. we can we can mainly agree that like at least as far as like physical therapists and re- and, and and strength and conditioning coaches or trainers, you at least have to have like the physical dimensions of the game covered. And so if we can agree on that, then whether the athlete is training or rehabbing, they have to meet those physical d- demands of the game. So then, like train, I think trainers and physical therapists 
should both need to know how to do that. Now, depending on the environment you work in, like in an outpatient orthopedic setting, like I mentioned to you, you know, earlier on, like I don't always have access to the strength coaches and personal trainers, right? And maybe just because of the situ- the financial situation, maybe the athlete doesn't either. And because their insurance is covering the, their, their rehabilitation, like the only quote unquote training they're going to get is with me, which is like their end stage rehab. Right. So I kind of need to know the whole continuum, but there's also plenty of strength coaches or trainers who like they might get somebody, you know, let's say it's like a, like a high school strength and conditioning coach. They get somebody who's been kicked out of ACL re- rehab after three months because the insurance cut them off and the visits aren't being covered at three months. Somebody is not adequately prepared. So like, you know, the, the, the end stage needs to look this look the same. And I would say the terminal part of that preparation looks the same. The only difference is the legality and maybe like very acutely because you have tissue healing and pain, that's a constraint that might alter what you do initially. And all that's really going to change is, you know, when you have, when you have to respect tissue healing times and pain, you have things like swelling to manage, maybe like the, the very low level, like, you know, active and passive range of motion, like low level motor control is going to be altered. But once you restore that, it's like, it's really the same thing. And I think when people say that they're fundamentally different, a lot of times you have to look, I always look, I'm a cynical person. I'm always like, <laughs> what is, what is their agenda? Right. And typically the agenda is, I, I think that, you know, I've dealt with this on both ends. Like as a physical therapist, I've seen other professions try to prevent physical therapists from trying to do things. And they always say it's because physical therapists can't do it. It's not safe. Typically it's because they have a financial interest in monopolizing a certain intervention or scope of practice and they don't like competition. And I've also seen physical therapists because I've gotten emails from my professional body and it's like, Hey, you know, um, sign this petition to block, you know, strength and conditioning coaches or athletic trainers from doing X intervention, which might be something that looks like manual therapy. So it works, it works both ways, but ultimately it's like you either are competent to do, do these things and progress the athlete from point A to point B or you're not. And I think that for the athlete's sake, having competition is good as long as no one's violating the law. Um, I think that outside of that really look like that constraint of there's initial pain and tissue healing that has to be respected. It's really like kind of the same thing. And, you know, I, like if I, if I had an apprentice that was a strength coach and they like did an internship, like after a couple of months, like I could teach them how to do a low level rehab. It doesn't right. mean that the law, would, the law would allow them to do it, but it's not really as mystical as people make it. We just like to, protect these things because we don't we don't want other people kind of breathing into our market share. So I think if I'm being honest, that's the biggest reason why these things are so differentiated and overstated. Mm, and I'm sure, sure we're going to have people that would disagree with me in my field sure. and even good, good faith people, but that's kind of how I see it if I'm being honest. Yeah. No, I agree. And like one of the things that we've always done at IFAST because especially when Bill was taking PT students regularly, we'd have a lot of people that would apply for our strength and conditioning internship but they're like, but I just want to hang out with Bill. I'm like, okay, that's cool. But like, you got to learn how to be, if you're going to do this side of it, or you want to understand this side, like buy into this side of it, right? Spend the three, three and a half months becoming a great coach. So that way, when you go, and if you are going to go to physical therapy school and do a rotation and all that, when you come out, now you understand both ends of the spectrum far, far greater than if you just did the PT side alone. I I 100% agree with that. And I, I mean, let, let's say somebody in that situation is like they're intent on like, I'm going to go to physical therapy school. And before physical therapy school, they have the option of 
um, watch shadowing a strength coach or, or a physical therapist, they're going to be much better off in the long run having shadowed that strength coach because in physical therapy school, there's, there's like pretty much a year allotted for yes. you to follow physical therapists. Now, if you're not sure, if you're on the fence, then it makes sense to maybe be exposed to both. But if you're sure. like, I'm definitely going to physical therapy school, like you may as well, I mean, obviously you might get a clinical rotation in physical therapy school where you're shadowing someone who's kind of knowledgeable about that whole continuum, but there's a good chance you won't. And you like, maybe yeah. if you didn't have that strength and conditioning experience, you may never be exposed to somebody who does that. And now you're going to be lacking that, that part of the continuum um, because you weren't exposed to it. So like, I know, you know, I did strength and conditioning internships before PT school, you know, I did one at Cressy's, did one at Hofstra university with a football football team there. And like, I can, I think it's made me a lot better. And I always, oftentimes, no matter how much more I learn, I go back to like, what are the basics that I learned like very early on? And you really, the more you do, the more you appreciate like how effective those things are if you actually do them. Yeah. For sure. Okay, so this is kind of a random thought, but I would love to hear your thoughts on return to play versus return to performance. This is something I hear people talking a lot about now. Is this a real thing or just like semantic BS that people want to argue about on the internet? Yeah, and until you you like sent me the um, the email with the questions, I was kind of like, I know I've heard of that distinction before, but obviously, like if I if I've forgotten it, it probably wasn't that meaningful to me. I mean. I'm going to speculate about what I think that is, but I'm interested to hear like what your perception of it is. I would imagine that return to play is okay. Like you got somebody where they're like, they're able, just able to play, but maybe not at a high level and return to performance is like, they're actually able to perform. I mean, why would you rehab somebody that wasn't able to perform well, just be able to play. So to me, it kind of is semantics. It's like the goal, the goal is not to get somebody to like, step on the field and like just get in a game and punch a ticket. The goal is like to make them confident and perform to the utmost of their capabilities. And I would say the goal should be regardless of what semantics you buy into the goal is have they met the physical demands of the game? So any limitation that they have is going to be more skill or, you know, technical, tactical, strategic based, maybe the, you know, the part of the preparation that you're not really responsible for. Yeah. But if you did your job, like they should be physically prepared. So I, I do really see it as more semantic because I, you know, I think a lot of this stuff is like people kind of invent these a new language and new words to kind of just create like a niche in the field. But it's yes. like you're you're either you're ready or you're not. You can play or you can't. So yeah. you can call it play performance, but to me, it's like you should be ready to play or perform well and at the level that the game demands, so that you don't have to worry about being, you know, physically confident in your ability. Like you know that that's there and. Now it's a matter of like, are you good at the sport? Yeah. No, I couldn't agree more. And and I kind of thought it was semantics as well. But, you know, some people will say, well, return to play is just like when you're kind of getting back out there and you're not really ready to compete yet. And Okay, I get that. But like you said, you should never feel physically unprepared, right? Like maybe you haven't hit a certain speed or you haven't, you know, you haven't done things live. But I mean, even at in-stage rehab, like there's a reactive element, right? Like you don't want to put them out there in this chaotic environment, right? Competing if they haven't yeah. done some form of that in a more controlled environment in the gym first. Yeah. And there's, no, I mean, there's, there's, there's some nuance here because anytime somebody is injured, I mean, and that's like where the ethics comes into it. It's kind of ultimately their choice. Like, yeah, you, you look at like where pro sports, where there's a lot at stake, especially in terms of money. I mean, let's say it's like, you know, game seven of the NBA finals and in game six, somebody sprains their ankle. I mean, they might not be like 
ready to to perform or play in like an optimal sense. But as long as they're okay with the risks of playing and there's like the importance of that game. So, you know, like in a vacuum, yes, people should always be like ready to, to play, you know, and be physically prepared. Um, but depending on like the importance of the game and, you know, is it a contract year and all these, as long as the athlete knows the risks and you, and you're, they're aware of those risks and you're transparent, then it's like kind of their choice. But, you know, if, if you're like, if you have unlimited time with somebody and you don't have a, an eminent game or competition, then they should be as ready to play as they're ever going to be. Yeah. You know, and there's great, no time constraints. That's a great answer. Yeah. And that's one thing I don't think most people understand is there's always context involved when it comes yeah. to these situations, right? Like if you have a year to rehab somebody fully, okay, that's great. And if, you know, it's a minor injury, but hey, man, they got to play like tomorrow. What can we do to get them ready? And they're okay with the risks. You know, that's again, like you said, that's such a great point and distinction to make. So, yeah, and is it in season? You know what I mean? If it's like if somebody like, a football player pulls their hamstring in season, but it's like a grade one, they might still feel a little bit of a tug, but you know, it doesn't mean they can't necessarily play in the next game. Again, that's, that's where you get into the, I think with like the in season situation, it's a little bit more gray, but I'm talking about just like, you know, if it's someone's coming off a surgery and you know, you're not trying to rush them back, then it's like, why would you only prepare them like 75% and not all the way? Exactly. Exactly. Okay. So, I realize this is going to be a loaded question, and we'll probably break it up into a few di- few different segments, but I want to kind of throw it all out there first. So when it comes to getting back on the field, who should be doing what, right? You got your PT, your strength coach, you got all these different people. Who should be doing what? And then how do we go about sharing the responsibility across multiple practitioners who typically have totally different backgrounds? Yeah, I mean, I actually... so. We kind of touched on it a little bit earlier, but I don't think that it actually matters as long as you're not violating any laws and operating outside your scope of practice. But in terms of who should be doing what, once you account for the law, I mean, to me, the answer is whoever is like competent at doing the thing that needs to be done, right? Yeah. So, I mean, that like, depending on the environment you work in, like it. one of the things that I enjoy, people kind of romanticize like working in like high level sports because, you know, they think you get to like control everything. But as you know, you kind of like don't get to control everything in pro sports. One of the nice things about working in like outpatient orthopedic physical therapy is 90% of the time, if I'm working with an injured person, like I get to do everything, which is like kind of fun. Yes. Um, So because there is no, there is no strength coach, there is no athletic trainer. It's like, there's, you know, a lot of times, like I've worked with like track athletes where their track coaches don't want anything to do with somebody who's injured. So like I'm programming (laughs) their track stuff and it's kind of fun. I mean, I'm not saying that like, you know, I'm, if someone's like an Olympic sprinter, like I'm going to be analyzing their block spark start relative to other sprinters. But if it's like a team sport athlete and it's like, I'm just, they need to be like fast for their sport. Like I'm, you know, I'm comfortable with that. I know my limitations, you know, at like, at like a really high level, but I think it just really comes down to like knowing, doing a needs analysis of the athlete and being honest about, am I qualified to do this? And like, am I the best person to do it? Um, And that could be the physical therapist. It could be the strength coach. I think the bigger thing is just, are you being transparent about the whole thing? And like, is everybody being honest about what they can do competently and safely and what they can't do? And just having, having some kind of like a prearranged agreement about who's doing what. So that's going to matter more in a team setting in a traditional 
outpatient orthopedic setting, it doesn't matter as much because there's just the physical therapist, but right. like in, in a, in a team setting, like as long as they have that conversation, it doesn't like really matter who's doing what, as long as those, those buckets are, you know, and those needs are being, are being checked and those buckets are being filled. Um, but you know, like, especially at the higher, the terminal part of rehab, like if it's a field sport athlete, they have to be sprinting. They have to be doing change of direction work. So like that could be the physical therapist. It could be the strength coach. It's like who just feels like they're, they're able to do it. Um, I, I think if I'm being honest, like a lot of physical therapists probably aren't that comfortable with that. Like I'm generalizing as a whole. So in that case, I think that the strength coach, you know, if I, if I had to like pick is probably going to be more, more competent at that aspect of the preparation, but it just comes down to the transparency. And just, if you work in a team setting, figuring out like, all right, like what does the athlete actually need to accomplish and who on this team is, is capable and qualified of doing those things. And then may, I think it does help to have some redundancy because you don't always want to have like one person who can do something, but you know, where there is shared responsibility and shared competence, just figuring out who's doing what there's no really right or wrong answer. It's just as long as those things are being addressed and you're operating within your scope of practice. I truly don't think that it matters that much, which again is not going to be a satisfying answer to a lot of people, but it really doesn't like, because if the person who's working with the athlete knows what they're doing, does the title and the letters like really matter? I just don't think that it does. Right. Well, and this is something now I don't think Bill and I's situation is in any way, shape or form normal, right? There's, I don't think there's a ton of places, at least like us that are independent, that have a PT and a strength coach that work kind of in conjunction with each other. But I can tell you there's numerous times where he'll say, hey, I need you to do X, Y, and Z that would look more like rehabby or vice versa. You know what I mean? It's like, hey, here's what I'm doing on the strength and conditioning side. Can you help me kind of, you know, help me reinforce that with what you're doing in the gym or in the in the purple room? And so I think, like you said, it comes down to, and we're going to talk more about this in a minute, but like the communication side of it, right? Relaying who's doing what, kind of clarifying those roles, but then just being comfortable with, hey, who is this person that I'm working with? Um, what kind of conversations can I have? What is their experience? And that's one great thing. I mean, we've worked, again, Bill and I have worked together like 15 some years now. So it makes it a little bit easier for us to have those discussions. But if you can have these open and honest discussions about what the person needs, who's comfortable taking the lead in each kind of environment or scenario, it makes the entire process that much smoother. Yeah, and I, I think that, you know, in, a, in an ideal world, unlimited resources personnel, this is why like pro teams have a performance director because it helps to have someone who's like kind of the, the conductor of the orchestra and yes. a little bit more hands-off who can say, okay, because, you know, if you don't have that person, which a lot of organizations don't have that, then who like who gets to decide who does what because right you know there's always like kind of an implicit hierarchy and it's like i don't know if the pt should be the one saying well because i'm the pt here's what i'm going to do and here's what you're going to do that's not like really fair right that's often the default so if you have that that director you know that conductor of the orchestra type role then it takes kind of that like the, the political and the emotional awkwardness out of it where it's like yes. look this is the, and, and because they're a little bit more hands off, they're not as emotionally attached to like their their identity as the strength coach or the PT. Yes. So they can say they can say, look, I recognize how arbitrary these professions are and these boundaries are, but because I'm the director, you know, like here's where physical therapy ends and training and strength and conditioning begins, and here's what each person is going to do. 
I recognize that you might have overlapping skill sets, but just for the sake of efficiency and just to, you know, have, have a standard operating procedure, like kind of here's how it's going to be. When you don't have that director, there could be a little bit more friction as to how those roles are defined. But again, a lot of, a lot of organizations don't have the, the resources that like a pro or like a high level collegiate team will have. But I think that's why you're seeing a lot more teams like have a director because it just helps to have someone who's like more hands off from like yes. a clinical care standpoint and is really more like big picture oriented. Yeah. Well, and like you alluded to, number one, there's there's a level of objectivity there, right? They're not going to be as emotionally attached as the person that's working with somebody every day. It also removes the ego from the equation, right? Because yeah. you know as well as I do at a high enough level, and I'm guilty of this, like everybody has some level of ego, right? Mm-hmm. We all think we can do something, but when you have somebody that's objective and can say kind of take a step back and say very clearly, I think this person is best up to this point, at which point we're going to switch to this other practitioner. It just makes everything a lot easier. Yeah. And the other, the other piece I think that is is important is I, you know, I'm all for like decentralized command. Like if I'm, I would never refer an athlete to a strength coach or a trainer that I didn't trust. Yep. So like, and this is just me. I never tell a strength coach that like, Hey, here's what I think you should do with this athlete. I might say like, here's what I found, but ultimately I might say, here's what I don't think you should do provide kind of like a constraint. Mm -hmm. But other than that, like, I don't want to tell another provider like how to do their job, you know? So like, you're going to do your own assessment. If you think someone needs something, you're going to find it. Like my biggest thing is like, here are the things that I think are like really bad for this person to do. And beyond that, and that's why I, that ties into like protocols where, I think a lot of protocols were, you know, in rehab, it'll say like, okay, at 12 weeks, here's the exact running progression you should use. And I'm kind of like, just tell me when you think it's safe to run. If it's like a surgeon, you know, I mean, like, I I think it's, it's fair to defer to the surgeon as to when you want this person to start running. But I I don't, I don't like as much when, when I'm told like, okay, here's exactly how you think their return to run progression should be because I really want to know, like, all right, what are you worried about from, like, a harm standpoint? Other than that, and, like, the absolute no's, like, let people kind of figure it out and kind of empower them. And I think that works. That should go for, you know, from surgeon to physical therapist, um, physical therapist to strength coach, and, you know, in in any of those directions. But that's why you've got to work with people that you can trust. Because if you don't trust them, I don't think that, like, micromanaging is going to make it any better, you know? Because they, they might still mess up the protocol if you don't trust them. So just... Find people you can trust, give them some constraints, but then let them run and do what they're good at. Yeah, I love it, man. Okay, so let's talk a little bit more about communication because I feel like it's definitely something we've done a better job of in the last five to 10 years. Remember, I mean, 10 years ago, we were talking about silos and you know the strength guys have their little space and the PT guys have their stri- their space. But in your opinion, how do you go about getting and then keeping everybody on the same page from a communication perspective? Yeah. I mean, luckily I don't have to do a ton of it where I am just because I don't work like for, for a team. I mean, typically the communication that I'll do is more with, um, with like physicians. Um, and you know, if an athlete wants, like if they do work with an outside person, then I'll communicate with that person. I think the biggest thing, no matter what level you're at, who you're communicating with is just, just transparency. Um, and you mentioned the, the ego piece, like, I truly do not care who helps the athlete. Like sometimes I'm not the best person for them sure. to work with. I just want them to get better. But I think a lot of times like we we want to be the reason why an athlete succeeds. So that's kind of where the where the ego piece comes in. But 
I think it really comes down to the communication is not doing things on the fly because if you don't have standard operating procedures and clear boundaries, and again, the boundaries are arbitrary. Like it doesn't matter where they are, but you like I think it's helpful for the different stakeholders to know what their role is because if they don't know, most people are going to be overzealous and try to do try to do too much yep. because again they want to be the reason why somebody succeeds, and then inadvertently they might be stepping on somebody's toes without actually that being their intent. Um, so I think you need to have the just the uh, an ongoing communication loop. You have to have communication on the front end where like all right here here are the roles like and then hey are these roles clear? If they're not clear, let's let's hash them out. And then even when the roles are clear, just have those continual conversations at, at various points, especially when during those transition periods where it's like okay, you know, let's say an organization deems that at three months after an ACL surgery is when it becomes kind of the strength coach's domain. Well, that's when you have to have a lot more communication. That's when they're being handed over. Yes. Um, so it's just like identify those, those key friction points, kind of like, you know, really beef up the communication then, and then just have communication on, on the front end so people know what their roles and responsibilities are. But also knowing that if like say a strength coach does inherit an athlete at three months, that, the, the, the physical therapist who just worked with the athlete for the last three months is still a resource and the strength coach doesn't have to feel awkward about going to them in the early part of that transition and just saying, Hey, you know, do you have any, do you have any guidance here? Or what, you know, what are your thoughts? Um, and just, you know, that's where I think it just helps to be part of a team where everybody respects one another, because then you're going to be more likely to ask those questions and not, yes. not be ashamed to, you know, make it about you or like make it a shame to show that you might not be comfortable with something. Dude, that, it's such a great point. And, so I want to come back to this idea. I love your idea of not telling somebody what to do and just giving them constraints. I think that's fabulous. I think one other thing that's really important when there's these transitions between practitioners is, okay, you give them constraints, but one of the things I always try and do is express my intention with where I'm at, right? Yeah. So without telling you, hey, you need to do this exercise or this activity, whatever, I'll try and make very clear, like, hey, look, here's what we've been doing. This is my intent, or this is where I see that they're at. And then they're free to, again, they've got agency in the process now, and they can say, okay, well, this is what Mike was trying to do. This is what I found works well. And then they can kind of take up the slack from there, so to speak. But I think that that idea of providing intention gives them just some ideas to where they're at in the training process. And then it just makes kind of that pass off a little bit smoother. Yeah. I mean, I think a good exercise to do for this, like a thought exercise is imagine like if you didn't know the person's background or you couldn't talk to anybody else. Like if you as a strength coach, if somebody came in and like their knee was swollen and they couldn't <laughs> walk, right? right? And they, they weren't allowed to talk until they had ACL surgery, but they were like, they, they could say, hey, like I want to, I'm a professional soccer player. You'd be like, well, you, you like can't even walk. So like, what are you, what are you doing here? And it's, it's, it's kind of like, but similarly, if you got that athlete at three months when maybe they're starting to get symmetrical strength, you know, limb to limb, but they hadn't started running yet, like you do your assessment and you'd be like, oh, like you haven't, you, you, like you haven't run in three months. If you knew an athlete hadn't run in three months, you wouldn't have them sprint max velocity right. day one. You would do like, you would have a progression. It's like, all right, well, let me watch you like do a stride or like even like a sprinting drill, you know, like you already have progressions for these things. So, I mean, obviously like, that's not the world we live in and we can talk to people and, and communicate. But yeah, I think that's your point is a good one. Like just 
if you're handing over someone typically like from, let's say like a rehab provider to a strength coach, it's like, here's where I've gotten them. Here's what they can do now. They haven't done their running progression yet, or their change of direction progression yet. You know, they're, they're stronger than where they were, you know, three months ago, but I still think that they're like, they're lacking some, some quad strength side to side. As long as you tell them like what those, the, the big rocks are like, let them figure out how to do it, but they should also kind of do their own assessment. And if yes. someone doesn't run in three months, it'll be pretty apparent that like, yeah, they haven't run in three months, you know? Right. They need so, some work. Yeah. They'll, they'll tell you, they'll tell you, I just, yeah, like I don't feel comfortable running right now. Yeah. And then, and then you're going to have to go through your progression anyway. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So this is actually going to go kind of seamlessly into my next question. And I'll be honest, I'm not sure I know exactly where I feel in this regard, but I do think we need some KPIs and some objective criteria to help us streamline this return to play, return to sport process. Now, on the flip side of that, I also realize it makes absolutely zero sense to just needlessly track metrics without looking at subjective criteria as well. So I'd love to know, what are your thoughts on this? And how do we go about blending the subjective with the objective to create a more seamless and integrated return to play process? Yeah, so I mean, you definitely, you need to collect some objective data to calibrate your coaching eye and to keep yourself honest. So I, I'm conceding that right away so people aren't like, oh, this guy is like anti-testing. But I also, th- I also think that sometimes like, testing can detract from your training or from your rehab. I mean, I, w- I would make, make the case that if you, if you have like a separate testing day and you're like, you're just totally surprised by the results of that, that's a failure of your process because it's like, okay, I mean, I, I think that like there is, especially early on in rehab, like there is a, it is important to like actually test isolated quad strength because there's only so many movements you can do that truly isolate the quad and right. people can cheat and they can look good to your eye, and but you don't know that they're quads deficient unless you like actually test that. But then again, I'm also I have a leg extension machine in my clinic. So even like very early on, like I don't have people do full range, you know, leg extensions unilaterally, but I might have them do like an ISO hold, you know, where they're pretty much at their whatever maximum degree of flexion they have, where there's like very little ACL stress. And I'll be like, okay, like hold whatever weight you can hold for, you know. 40 to 60 seconds. So uh, even in my, like in my rehab, I'm already gathering objective data because I know that, okay, like on, on the right side, the person can do 30 pounds for 40 seconds on the left side, they can do the whole rack. Right. Right. There's (laughs) so, so like I shouldn't be that surprised when a month later I test their quad strength on whatever device is a little bit more kind of official looking and I get a result because I like, I should be tracking those things. So, and the thing with testing is like, where do you where do you draw the line? At a certain point, you got you you can only use you can only have so many assessments in your test. So is it is it quad strength? Is it you know some kind of a unilateral exercise? Is it a hop test? After a while, when you take all those things, it actually looks like your training process or your rehab process because you're already doing all those things. So like as part of my you know at three months, like we're doing strength exercises, unilateral and bilateral that we can. I mean, I'm not using a force plate necessarily, but like you can track how much weight they're using. Um, we're doing, we're doing, we're doing plyos. We're doing bilateral plyos, unilateral plyos. So like, for the most part, I'm using my eye, but I'm also looking at so many different things that, like, typically that's going to reveal the deficiencies because I don't want to have to rely on my eye. I have so many different things that 
I'm doing throughout that process that typically it's going to reveal an inadequacy. But I do think we need to, we need to like, you know, use some objective testing. The question is just like, where do you draw the line on how much? I do think that the, the things that people test oftentimes are arbitrary. I think as long as you are testing, you know, early on quad strength in some way, you are testing some kind of like a more of a, more of a compound movement, leg to leg, you are doing some kind of a jump test. Like, I don't know if we're going to be able to have the precision to say, okay, based on this one or two tests, we know someone's prepared or not. Um, and I, I, I would never want to rely on only two things. Right. I want to rely on a more, a more global process. So that, that's kind of where I am on it. I think you definitely do need some objective things, but I also think there's some people that are just so obsessed with finding like the perfect, the perfect test, quote unquote, that like those things don't really exist. And how many tests do you have to use to really inform your process? At a certain point, all of that testing blends into like the right training, training program and process should be diagnostic. And if you're, like I said, if you need a separate testing day to really like tell the athlete where that, where that athlete is, then it's probably a failure of your process that you're, you're like so surprised by those results. It kind of reminds me of like when I was in the military, like just as part of being in the air force, like once a year you had to, had to take a shooting test, but the shooting test was generally so easy. It was objective, but like we always held ourselves to a higher standard than the test. So we were never worried about it. And because we did so much shooting and range time and drilling on the range, like the test wasn't hard and like kind of our training was the test. You were testing right. ourselves every day and trying to quantify it. So I think that, you know, ultimately the, the real goal should be instead of obsessing about like what separate tests you're doing, because if you're doing testing that's separate from your training, then how important is the test? If it's yeah, really exactly. important, you should be doing it. You should it be should. doing it pretty frequently and you should have a way to quantify it. I know there was a discussion on social media lately where, and Mike Boyle, Boyle was chiming in talking about like, um, like the three, the three jump tests, like hard, three horizontal jumps, like basically a triple jump on one leg. And his point was like, if you would never do this with a healthy athlete, why would you do it in someone that's like <laughs> four months post ACL just to get data? And I kind of agree with that. It's like, right. if you never, if you would never do it in a healthy person, why would you do it in training? Now the, now the counter to that is like, I might with a healthy person typically not look for like some of the isolated tests, like in a healthy person, I'm, more, I'm less likely to look at like isolated limb to limb quad strength than I would in an injured person. But yeah, I mean like I'm, I'm typically not doing like triple jump stuff with healthy people that never do. And first of all, like if they've never done it before, you're going to be like, okay, you're four months post-op, like let's do a warm up. Here's how to do this test. Now I want you to do it at max effort for the right. first time in your life. Right. You know? So I think sometimes we become so, we become so obsessed with data that we're like, well, we've got to do this like triple jump test. But like, if they've literally never done it at max effort, why would you do it when you're not confident they're at a hundred percent for the first time? Like that to me is insane. Right. So that's, that's kind of where I'm on it. Like I, I recognize that it's important, but I think your process should also be somewhat diagnostic and quantifiable where you don't need to rely on separate testing that detracts from what you would normally want to do that day. Yeah. So one of the things that I always tell my athletes that, are going through like a more extended rehab process, whether it's an ACL and Achilles is that there should be no point in your process, right? In the rehab or training process, whatever you want to call it, where you're legitimately scared to do something, right? So imagine being four months post-op, you've never done this triple jump on your affected leg. And now you got to do it for a max effort. Like you said, right? Like that would be scary. 
that could, yeah. that would be scary because you are legitimately wondering, could I re-injure myself? So I always tell these athletes, look, as we're going through this process, if we've done our job as strength coaches or physical therapists, everything should be so streamlined and smooth, you're never afraid to take that next step. Maybe trying something new, but it's never like you're going from like level one to level 10 in one session. Yeah. And I mean, I, th- I think that's a great point. And even, even if you're not coming off an injury, like if somebody says, Hey Mike, like we're going to do a max, you know, we're going to max out on something. It's, it's, it's a test. Like your like stress response goes up, your anxiety yeah. goes up because you want to, you want to do well. And sometimes like a rehabbing athlete, depending on what, like that's the last thing they need is more psychological stress and reasons to feel guarded. Yes. Right. Whereas like, if you're just keeping track of what they're normally doing and you're quantifying it, but not really making a big deal out of it, you're getting the data you need without driving some of that anxiety. Now, like if I, you know, if I like work for an NBA team where I have a limited budget, like, yeah, I would do the same stuff I normally do on a force plate because right. why not? You know, we'd be doing right. our plows on a force plate. And then now you're really like, that's truly diagnostic because you're testing it. But I don't know how many like separate testing days I would have because it's also like, you're trying to like just maximize like their adaptation. And now you can't do the training thing you wanted because you've got to get a diagnostic number. And a lot of times like the, the testing stuff isn't really for you or the athlete. It's because you answer to somebody. Again, going yeah. back to like, I'm cynical. A lot of times it's like you have to justify what you're doing to somebody else and just giving them a number makes them feel better. You know, right. it's kind of like in the early COVID, like just stay six feet away from people and you're good. <laughs> that number makes you feel good. But like how robust is that number? Like, right. And a lot of times people don't really question how people derive at that number. As long as you give them a number, you're off the hook. And now you can go back and do what you really want to do. Right. So, but I recognize that like we, we always, we all answer to somebody. So sometimes you have to just give somebody a number to give yourself some breathing room, but it doesn't always tell the whole story. Yeah. I love it, man. Okay. So again, this kind of goes seamlessly into my next thought, because if anybody has done a long-term rehab and ACL and Achilles, there's not just the physiological or the physical side, but there's the psychological aspect to the process as well. So, how do you account for this? Or maybe how do you address the psychological side throughout the process? I think you the, the, the main answer is you already touched on it, which is if you use the right progression, you can't really differentiate the physical from the psychological. Like, you know, like Sapolsky talks about this. It's got that uh, human behavioral biology course on Stanford on YouTube. I remember watching that. And his first lecture is all about buckets and how we compartmentalize things and have these like specialized domains and, and disciplines because it makes things easier to study to separate them. But in reality, I think that the psychological piece is, I'm not going to say totally, but largely addressed if you do the right progressions. Because yeah. if, you, if you tell somebody that's not prepared to sprint to go <laughs> and like play in a game and they've never sprinted before, and now they've got to do it and react to a live opponent in an adversarial way, psychologically that's going to drive their their stress response right whereas like if you've done things that ultimately mimic the game in your preparation and you, and then you use the right pre- the right progressions like you don't just throw them into a game but maybe you do you know one-on-one stuff and then two-on-two stuff and then a small-sided game and then you play a full court where the speeds are higher you know like you can control all these variables so that like you said if you're doing it right they should never really be, have that much anxiety about the next step because they've kind of mastered or excelled at the previous step you're like and you go to the next step and it's just it's a small jump it's not a big jump if you do big jumps that's when people i think psychologically kind of like are are guarded and shut down 
Um, you know, I think there's there's a place for some of those like separate psychological questionnaires because that can give you a number on where the athlete feels psychologically and it's something that you can track over time. But you, you, you also know by watching the athlete and working with them multiple days a week, like what their confidence level is because you can see the inhibition. And yes. also doing a physical test is going to tell you like if they don't, if they're not demonstrating quantifiable output on the injured side, then they're either physically incapable of it or they're physically capable of it, but they're psychologically inhibited. And maybe that's where now you've got to, you've got to do something that's quote unquote more psychological and address that separately. But a lot of times, like even if someone's like changing direction and you watch them and it looks like they're more guarded on that one side, a lot of times you can attribute that to when you do this, your strength testing, or if you're tracking the right strength exercises as part of your process, it's like, yeah, well, they're deficient on that quad, you know, on the injured side by 40%. So they're not going to be able to, to break and have, and, and have the same output. And they're going to be guarded on that side because they don't have the physical qualities to allow them to demonstrate that skill properly. And then it's going to manifest psychologically. So I think they're, they're very, very intertwined. And I think that with the right, if you do the right progression, you're like, you know, 80% of the way there without having to do separate psychological stuff. But I see it all the time. We're just athletes were under rehab and now they have, you know, they have anxiety about going back to playing. And a lot of times that anxiety is protective. Like they yeah. should have it because they're actually not ready to play. Yeah. You know, dude, such a great point. Such a great point. Yeah. Cause but so much of this stuff is like, it's so much easier said than done. Like I'm making it sound like it's simple. I know. But like yeah. even communication, it's like, yeah, be transparent. Don't have an ego. That's easier said than done. Yeah. You know, communication is like, it's when you're, when it's abstract and you're not like in the thick of it, you're not dealing with other human beings. It's very easy, easy to talk about how human beings should communicate. <laughs> it's very easy to talk about like, oh yeah, like as long as you do the right progression, then the psychological part's easy. But what is the right progression? Like that's a whole, that's the hard part. It's like, yeah, but if you do it in theory correctly, then psychologically you're, you know, you're, you've addressed a, lot, a huge part of it. Yeah. Well, and I mean, there's, there's the, the levels of buy-in from the athlete trust from the athlete like there's so many levels to that and like you said if you check every one of those boxes it should be seamless and easy but like you said it's just not always the case right it's not yeah okay so we set up top it's been a few years since you've been on the show but i just i love your thought process i love how you're always thinking about things so i'm really curious what's been the biggest shift in your mindset or in your approach since we last spoke like in the last four or five years, what's changed or how have you evolved? Um, well, definitely a little bit more from a rehab standpoint, a little bit more respect for, you know, for a while, like the open chain, you know, like leg stuff, quad stuff was, was poo pooed. And I do think there's some validity to like in a closed chain, multi-joint movement, a lot of times like the athlete can fool you. And sometimes like the only way to, cause I see all these things now on, on the internet where like people are just taking some of these, like, like a squat and they're doing everything they can to make it a leg extension. It's like they're ramping people up. They're like, they're, they're keeping their torso like at a totally upright angle. And it's a lot of it just because like they have too much pride to just put them on a machine because machines are bad. It's like, right. Just put them on the effing machine and have them do a leg extension because what you really want is you're like trying to isolate the quad. Yeah. So just, just go ahead and do it. And now, you know, in a leg extension, like no other muscle for the most part can really take over. Like you can't like have your hamstring contribute to leg extension, knee extension, right. an open chain. So just like go, go do that. I think that there, 
especially earlier earlier on like i do appreciate the need to do some of like the more like isolated type movements maybe whereas at one time like i was just like too prideful to like yeah. train the machine or or do that kind of thing and i might even do it even with someone who's quote unquote healthy or like fully rehab because sometimes they can still default to wanting to inhibit that injured area if you don't you know periodically expo yeah. expose them to that so i mean that could be a case where like if you don't actually like want to do it regularly as part of your process then maybe periodically test it to make sure that it doesn't need to be like part of your training program then the other part is i mean kind of the more i would say just like i keep things way more simple than i than i used to um and because earlier on like there was my my maybe like more of a factor in me not getting the result that i want was like i just didn't know what to do and now i feel like there's less of not knowing what to do i'm not saying that doesn't happen but it's more of i know what to do but how do i get this person to do it mm. and the human part is the hardest part it's like yes i mean even like if you look at like from a public health standpoint like there's a lot of things that if you could get people to do very simple things there would be a lot less public health problems but it's hard to get people to do simple things i mean look at look at sleep it's like we don't need more research on sleep to show how important it is, but getting to sleep and getting adequate sleep and doing the right thing from a sleep hygiene standpoint is difficult because we all have competing demands. And we, like, I'm guilty of it. I mean, it's, people could say like, oh, don't, don't look at your phone within an hour before bed. <laughs> I can't remember the last time I didn't look at my phone an hour before bed. Yeah. Right. Like, can you, can you, you know, yeah. and no, it's hard. we're the ones that are teaching people to do this stuff. So it's hard. I mean, I think just and from a compliance standpoint, the simpler that, I can make things the better. And a lot of times earlier on, like I wanted to show people maybe how, how smart I was. So I might've like chased complexity for its own sake. And now like the simpler that I can make things like that's, that's what I'm after. Cause I know that if I give somebody something that's very esoteric, they're just not going to do it. And then they're not going to get the result that, that they want. And that ultimately reflects poorly on you. Yeah. And then they're not happy. So just like simpler is, is always better. <laughs> So, like, I just keep coming back to this, like, people that come to you already probably think you're really smart, right? Just by default yeah. of who you are, your profession, they trust that you're smart. So at that point, it really comes more about, like, are, do you get them res the result that they want, right? Yeah. Like, if you get them the result, they already think you're smart, like, that's a huge win. So now they're like, oh my gosh, Doug's the best PT I've ever worked with. You know, versus, hey, look how smart I am. And I'm adding all this needless complexity. And I sound really smart, but then I don't get the result that you want. Now there's the disconnect, right? It's like, I think one of the the sure signs of somebody that does this long enough is just this constant pruning, right? Of their their methods and their strategies to really like peel back. Okay, what is the, re like, what is the most impactful stuff I can do yeah. in every environment, every scenario? And... It's just, it's part of the process, right? There's novelty for a long time, right? Because when you start, it's w wherever you're starting, right? Like squatting, benching, deadlifting, <laughs> whatever your skill set is, you add a whole bunch of stuff and novelty for 5, 10, 15 years. And then I think after that, it's just like, hey, what of this like just doesn't move the needle and what is left that's really impactful and that I need to like really focus in on? That's a great point. I mean, it's really just triage, right? And I think there was probably a time when I I wasn't as maybe uh, attentive to what the athlete or patient really wanted. And it was more like, well, I think you should be able to do all these things before you do this. But it wasn't because they really needed to do it. I mean, ultimately, it's like, why are they there? And what do, you, what do they want to do? Because we all have a bias 
going into the fields that we went into, whether it's like strength and conditioning or physical therapy, we were obsessed with like, okay, like how, how well do you move? And, you know, like a lot of times we, some people, I think a lot of times just need like output, especially with gen pop, you know, like if you're working with like an elite athlete that has these crazy outputs for them, maybe they need to worry about like maybe more like how they're doing something. So they're not like just continually loading the same tissues all the time. But there are some people, especially in a gen pop setting where it's like, I could do all the movement screening in the world and find like a ton of what one might deem flaws. And I could, I could chase that forever. And they're probably, you know, not move the needle very much, but if their goal is to do something very simple, maybe just getting them some, some output, even if it's not with like a strategy that I would deem to be like perfect or optimal, optimal. just, just like, because if it's going to help them achieve their goal and live the life they want, like who am I to tell them how they should do things and how they should move. Right. It's like, yeah, just go like, go do some, whatever low level aerobic work you want, like, you know, three days a week for this duration and maybe do a couple of general strength exercises and like, that's going to move the needle to help you achieve your goal more than me putting you through this very complicated process, which is maybe something that I care about for myself, but actually doesn't really matter to you. And you never did in your life before you met me. So like, if I don't have to make you do it now, why would I make you, if I, you know, why would I make you do it now? If you never did it. We're never interested in it. You know? Right. I love it, man. All right. I know we're up against the clock here. You've got uh, some patients coming in. So last but not least, we got our lightning round. Super excited for this one because we know each other. And uh, man, I want to hear your answers to these. So number one, greatest 80s movie of all time. The original Top Gun. Oh, yeah. Hard to argue. Hard to argue. All right. Number two, favorite 80s band. Van Halen. Okay. See? See, I love how this is going. Okay. Number three, this is probably a little bit harder. How has becoming a father impacted you as a coach or clinician? Uh, It definitely makes you more patient, as you can probably... Yes. A test too. <laughs> yes. Um, and, and just like the, you know, you can't reason with, uh, with the baby. <laughs> so having like, just learning the, like the emotional control and the composure of like, I can't reason this person out of it. Just have to learn to, yes. you know, like kind of ride out, ride out the storm. But it also made me appreciate like how many adults truly do act like children and how sometimes like <laughs> you're just like, how are, you know, you have to almost like babysit people to get them to do certain things to get the result you want. So sometimes it's not that much different, but definitely patience is the big thing. I love it. Okay. Number four, Cobra Kai, amazing or just okay. The first season was amazing. You know, huge nostalgia, nostalgia factor there. Yes. I thought that the subsequent seasons, it got a little crazy where it was like, you know, kids are throwing each other off balconies and getting like getting paralyzed. Like that was was like a little bit too much. Kind of like, it was getting a little bit too violent, you know? Um, but I'm, I'm thinking that the, this this next season coming up is things are going to come together. Yes. And I'm hoping they just kind of make it more about like just the, the core stuff that we all liked about the first season and not as like just this crazy choreographed, violent dance gangs and just go back to, you know, <laughs> trying try to just make it more like it was back, you know, the original. Yeah. The first season, classic. Classic. Yeah. It was so good. Okay. Yeah. Last but not least, number five, what's next for Doug Kachijan, man? Yeah, like I said before, just trying to grow the team at home and the team professionally. And then um, we're actually at Resilient. We're, act- we're writing a – we just signed a contract with Human Kinetics to write a return to sport book. Nice. Which will, be, which will be challenging but fun because it's one thing to, like, think that you know stuff. It's another to actually articulate it in a concrete way. 
um, in a way that other people can digest. So yeah, we just, um, we're like kind of a month into that and that's awesome. I have a bunch of words written down, but nothing that's that <laughs> coherent yet. And yeah. you know, there's Greg Trevor and I are all writing it. So it's also a challenge just to like getting people to not say the same thing and make it seamless. But, um, I definitely wouldn't want to do it by myself. So yeah. it's going to be, uh, it's going to be fun, but you know, just one more, more juice to squeeze out of the orange, you know? Yes. Well, and here's the great thing. And I've always told people this, like stuff like that will tighten up everything that you do, right? Yeah. Because all the stuff that's in your brain bouncing around that you maybe take for granted now trying to get it out and make it into something that somebody else can understand, your process is going to be so much tighter after this, man. I'm excited. Yeah, I'll be your you've first buyer. Times. You've got some practice, yeah. Yeah, so. I've, done, I've done a few things like that. So Yeah. Well, Doug, man, so great catching up with you today. Where can my listeners find out more about you? Yeah, we're on um, we're on Instagram, ResilientPPT is the handle. And then our website is ResilientPerformance.com. Um, my personal, social media-wise, I do Twitter the most personally. It's GreenFeetPT is the handle there. Uh, but I would say probably like, you know, if you want something, reaching out via the website is the, the best thing or DMing on um, Instagram or Twitter. Perfect. I'll make sure I get all the links in the show notes. But again, man, thank you so much for your time, Doug. This was awesome. Yeah, thanks, man. Always fun to chat. All right, my friend, that does it for this week's episode with Doug Kachijan. Really hope you enjoyed it. I mean, Doug is just so much fun to talk to. And obviously we could sit here and talk about 80s movies and music till we're blue in the face. But we just have such great conversations. Uh, I love the sections where, uh, not just because I was talking about it, but talking about the intention behind the program, the communication side of Return to Play. I loved his thoughts where he was talking about just not necessarily telling somebody else what to do, but telling them, hey, these are the things I would definitely stay away from. And I think just, you know, having some of these kind of behind the scenes discussions can really help advance our industry and hopefully streamline the return to play process. Because so often as practitioners, we get territorial or, you know, as he alluded to, sometimes it's a financial issue, like there's uh, you know financial interests involved or competitiveness involved. Man, at the end of the day, it should not be about us. It should be about us giving our athletes the best possible chance for a full return to play and return to sport. So again, really hope you enjoyed the episode. If you did, do me a small favor and just share this with a fellow practitioner, somebody else that you think would benefit from hearing Doug and I's discussion. Maybe somebody that is either in return to play or wants to get into the return to play side of the field. So my friend, as always, thank you so much for your support. Love and appreciate you. And we'll be back next week with our next episode. Take care.